0: As she's ascending through these very elite institutions, through Oxford, through um, the Society magazine, you know, and then ending up in the Tate Britain, surrounded by all these Turner paintings and, you know, depictions of a really beautiful Turner-esque England, her life is declining.
1: Hello, and welcome to Tender Buttons a podcast chatting to writers and artists about their process and politics with me Jessica Andrews and my co-host Jack Young.
2: If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode as a listener of the show you can get a 10% discount by entering tender buttons at the StorySmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com, or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster.
1: Today we're really excited to bring you a Tender Buttons episode with Jo Hamier. Jo was born in London in 1997. She's worked as a copy editor at Tatler and a bookseller at Waterstones. Her journalism has been published in the Financial Times and Three Rooms is her first novel. Three Rooms opens in autumn, 2018, when our young protagonist takes up a research position at Oxford University. Living and working in the spaces that have given birth to the country's leaders, she is both insider and outsider. That summer, she finds herself in London, working a temp contract at a society magazine and sleeping on a stranger's sofa as England roils with questions around its domestic civil rights, Brexit, Grenfell, climate change, homelessness. Meanwhile, tensions with her flatmate escalate, she is overworked and underpaid and the prospects of a permanent job seem increasingly unlikely until she finally has to ask herself, what is this all for? Hey Joe. welcome to Tender Buttons. We're very pleased to have you today. Thanks for having me. If you would like
0: to start with a reading, that would be great. Sure. I walked... Doe to that ceiling of angels painted centuries ago, it all ascends, the admirable smoke and drink and the deep armchairs and the pleasant carpets, the urbanity, the geniality, the dignity, which are the offspring of luxury and privacy and space. Three years spent having dinner delivered from an invisible kitchen to a well-adorned hall, A degree in pursuit of public service, while white gloves put out plates of slow-cooked duck with an orange and ginger sauce. I walked. do dem out they come. Picture them polishing shoes and a CV. The bridge sighs. What would there be to make them if not where they came from? Intellectual freedom depends on material things. Everywhere, the heavy wooden doors and the keyholes false promise everywhere the push and pull of magnet strips, the binary code, a database, and no chance of entry so random as finding a piece of metal to turn in a hole. I walked. Everywhere, languor. Do Fidem, what keeps it pretty? Do Fidem, at what point does intention evolve?
1: Thanks so much. That was brilliant. Okay, so the first thing that we wanted to ask you was your book is called Three Rooms and at the beginning you have um a quote from Wolf. Um, and it seems to be very much in in conversation with a room of one's own um, and I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Did it spring from that essay
0: and what kinds of things were you thinking about in relation to it? Um, no, it didn't spring from the essay. The first idea for the book was to write a much more straightforward kind of bildungsroman, but that would still have a psychogeographical aspect. So it was going to be about a, a group of boys who would grow up to be politicians Um, And they were based on people like David Cameron or um, George Osborne or Michael Gove. And um, the book was going to move from Eton to Oxford to Westminster. And I realised after something like 30 pages of my first draft that I really had no interest in the boys that I was writing about. So I shelved them, but I still really liked the idea of doing away with sort of the conventional things that people look for in a book which are plot and character and and dialogue and kind of basing a book entirely around place and location and as I was thinking all of this the kind of mess that was 2018 was happening and um, I began looking basically for your texts so I was really close to using Gaston Bachelard's The Poetics of Space instead of The Wolf, but it was much too joyful for a book about British politics um, and and just far too happy. And The Wolf um, was interesting because it was a nice kind of um, compare and contrast uh, to bind the book around. Um, so there are kind of moments in it that try to evolve some of Wolfe's arguments so you know my version of Mary Baton, Mary Satan, Mary Carmichael is a woman called Maria who appears in part one Um, or you know the kind of going from Oxbridge to London is based you know on Wolfe moving from Cambridge out into the streets of London to apply her argument into a a kind of real world setting and so that meant that I had to start the book from a theoretical standpoint and then move it into the real world into a workplace and it just meant that I had um, structure, I was really bent on having some form of structure so that along with the news events of 2018 and 2019 meant that as long as there was all of this binding the book um, together very tightly I could go wild with the language.
1: Yeah, I, I really like the sort of um I like that grounding in Wolf because I feel like even though a room of one's own is like this kind of seminal feminist text in a way, it's like um like I feel like I personally have a complicated relation to it relationship to it because Wolf herself comes from like a really elite background. But I feel like the way the way that your book interrogates these elite places, it's sort of in a very clever way, you 're interrogating wolf 's position at the same time
0: yeah i think I think there are moments of there are blind spots in her argument that do come from you know having grown up in a very lovely house in Kensington and then you know even the kind of bohemian existence that she had in Bloomsbury was ultimately kind of commodified into a luxury lifestyle, and so you know the way that she approaches domestic tasks the way that she approaches sort of housekeeping moments where she says something like along the lines of you know i have money and it's made me free but oh wait it's come from my aunt's inheritance um those were all things to contrast as opposed to compare in the book
2: yeah i find it really interesting hearing you um talk about this first idea and the idea of doing like a buildings roman with the uh elite boys and I was thinking about like your use of the the numerals on the chapters formally and I was trying to like work out the code of it because um just just to point out that the first chapter is uh with the numerals one and six and the final one it's three and the letter n and I was wondering how that related to so like the building's man is like you know the classic structure of being the coming of age temporality from like ignorance to knowledge from dependence to independence and so much I feel like of free rooms is inverting that expectation, and I wondered if you could how your subversion of the building's Roman played out.
0: That's a really good reading of it. I hadn't um, been able to word it so precisely, so thank you. Um, <sighs> but uh, the the Roman numerals are sort of my private in joke because uh, while I was writing, um, the idea was just that. This character should start with a fairly stable existence of um, a, a, at least a sort of a job that she's on a contract for, and a went and a rented room, and um, you know some sort of social life, not a massive one because she's you know she's not the greatest at that, but and that the whole novel kind of hinged on those things declining slowly, and so, but the book has three parts and nine sections and there's a kind of tipping point in the middle where it levels out but it was this idea that as she's ascending through these very elite institutions through Oxford through um the Society magazine you know and then ending up in the Tate Britain surrounded by all these Turner paintings and you know depictions of a really beautiful turner-esque england her life is declining so there's the sort of part that's going up according to conventions of about two decades ago of kind of blairism and social mobility in terms of her getting a better job and you know being in more elite places and yet you know the reality of her life declining and then that leveling takes place almost entirely on the internet which i suppose is the book's for want of a better word neutral space um in the sense that everything is there and you know she she spends a lot of time trying to avoid what her Twitter feed is spewing at her but unsuccessfully and sort of feels that it's a place that she can hide in when her own life is going terribly and then you know when the internet gives her terrible things she retreats back into her life but the two are sort of interlinked and so um both will always be kind of equally terrible or equally good.
1: I think something that I really loved about this book is kind of um the immediacy of it and how it's so much rooted in a particular political historical social moment in time and I feel like you know there's this kind of traditional idea that novels have to be these like timeless entities um which I don't really subscribe to (laughs) and I I felt like your book um, really pushed back against that it's so much about what it means to be alive in a particular time and space Um, and yeah was that
0: something that you were thinking about while you were writing? No um, I I was really surprised when I started reading uh, admittedly a small portion of my reviews but big enough to kind of annoy me that started saying oh well it'll be out of date in less than three months because we've already moved on from Brexit and no one cares and I I mean this country is obsessed with war novels I don't understand (laughs) um you know what the problem with setting something in a particular time is um I didn't think about that when I was writing it post um publication when it Kind of was drawn to my attention that that was something I should have thought of. I guess my only response was to think that if I'd drawn an adequate enough portrait of twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen of you know Britain in that time that people could recognize then 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 I'd done my job well, but really um basing it in that time was only because of the new cycle that was happening then um the news cycle around homelessness and Grenfell and Brexit and kind of the parallels between us and America which I ended up ended up cutting out but um I don't know everything was so tied into this idea of patriotism or feeling of how you belong in a country might shape your identity in the news and it was all already there contained in kind of two years worth of tweets and articles from the BBC and the Sunday Times and you know radio and random social media posts that I saved not really knowing what I wanted from them then but kind of it was nice to go back to and find some sort of coherence um running through the whole thing so um yeah I guess I guess the kind of idea of it being a little time capsule is as a byproduct. But that's interesting to think of because I now can't help but think of that book. I'm now a few months after publication, and it's become a different kind of time capsule for me, in a sense, um, of writing it and then publishing it. Um, and that took place kind of a year after the fact. For me, that book is kind of a portrait of. 2020 and you know finishing it in a pandemic and then suddenly getting this phone call um from jonathan cape saying we'd like to publish it out of nowhere um and then the process of kind of sitting at home you <laughs> know doing zoom calls about it um and not really knowing what what anyone was saying about it because i couldn't go outside
1: did it feel strange to i guess you're probably editing at this point a book about a specific political period and for the world to
0: have shifted so radically? I mean, in a way, it hadn't shifted. I mean, the practicality of living had shifted radically in the sense that, you know, we were apart from each other. But actually, I think the pandemic highlighted a lot of things in the book. You know, in the first stages of lockdown, there was utter ambivalence from the government about what to do about London's homeless population, and the UK's homeless population, who were getting unfairly punished for being out on the street, um, they couldn't help it. And yet, you know, they were breaking laws that really weren't made with them in mind. And I don't think anything massive changed with Grenfell between, you know, my reading the inquiry report and deep dive that the New Statesman did, just as my book came out, for the survivors and the victims of that tragedy. So there wasn't really... A, a massive amount of difference. I think the only weird thing about editing that book, you know, a year on, was that I'd expected, you know, I I didn't intend for it to be published. But if I had had to imagine what that would look like, sitting in my room, being unable <laughs> to to kind of see people in person and getting excited by a trip to Sainsbury's, would not have been how I imagined the process of publishing a novel.
2: I never. Another like longer form political context to it is like you've kind of touched on is like Blairism and the 90s into the financial crash and I one thing I found really striking is like when the protagonist is at the um society magazine and talking about issues around human rights crises that are going on post Brexit economic crisis that are around the corner the issues around homelessness the response from the magazine art editor is that all you're doing is just like talking about things just reading about them like this is the system you have to work within it that's all that we have and so i was thinking about the book while reading this in terms of in the wake of the 90s and blairism this kind of like impoverishment of the political imagination so the sense of which that art editor's inability to think of a world beyond this one And I feel like that really informs what the protagonist is constantly butting up against in terms of both, like, so many aspects of social injustice from, like, her own experiences of racism, from the kind of privilege of the society magazine, like, high elite Tory society. And so, yeah, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how that longer backdrop informs the protagonist as she moves through space and her political imaginary.
0: That largely sprang out of... um... Conversations that I'd had with my parents and friends of my parents, people that I'd worked with and for, who tended to be sort of between ten and twenty years older than me, and I think you know, I I don't blame them for. Um, I I'm not sure whether I would call what they're saying you know an impoverishment of political imagination, although. Um, in principle I agree with you I just think they were afforded a much more hopeful landscape and so what they built their lives on which is this kind of promise of social mobility and new money and um you know globalism and mixing and you know when you get a house and you have like a mixed race child and it's all good I don't I don't blame them for sort of saying well you struggle for a bit and then it gets better and the struggle is part of why it gets better because you grow it's like a very kind of neoliberal it's 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 what worked for them but obviously you know we're post that now we're in a gig economy most things take place online it's not so much people butting up against each other in terms of argument it's just an inability to really understand what each other's experience is I mean the line that you know you there's there's a point where the narrator goes to her flatmate's um parents house in the second part of the book and she has a bit of a mental breakdown over the fact that her life's going to shit and and the mother kind of you know mops up her tears and gives her a lovely face wash to use and is like you know don't worry dear it'll be okay you know you just work really hard and it gets better and that's basically what my mum said to me and that's what i was raised to believe by by everyone who was older than me when i was younger i remember in sixth form um my head of sixth form who was a really you know lovely guy and wanted the best for us insisting that we had to go to university even though it would land us in debt that we may never pay off, that university was still the best option because we needed what he considered, you know, a good kind of education. And it's only a very small percentage of people that I went to sit form with that managed to resist that idea and, and did apprenticeships instead. And they're the only people I know now who are homeowners, who have mortgages, who actually don't have any sort of, you know, financial worry. The the narrator in the book is a little bit older than I am. I I wanted her to be kind of still old enough to believe in this idea that her parents' generation had fed her, but also not young enough to reject it and think that there might be something better. And the art director at the magazine is kind of an interesting case because I think that entire environment is a very ambivalent one. The Society magazine that claims to reflect the... um, concerns of the country or the culture of the country and I had really great fun you know writing about the climate crisis within that bubble where you know their extinction rebellion march is taking place on the street and you know they want to go out and shoot it and instead they end up kind of trying to replicate it with glossy models who have you know never been on a march Um, it's a kind of remove that you know, people who think a society magazine is essential reading do um, do feel to any kind of um, politics of the day. It's kind of a nice accessory that makes you look cultured and educated. Um, and so I think that those are the two kind of difficulties that the narrator comes up against in the book one is generational and maybe you know it's fair to talk about that as a um as a kind of discourse or to kind of think about it more dialectically than as a binary and then the the other which is a binary which is that for a certain um clique or elite within this book it doesn't matter what generation they're from it actually does not matter you know whatever hardship this narrator is coming up against they will just never be able to understand. In connection with that, I thought, there's a really interesting line in there about
1: wanting, something about, um, I think the protagonist says to her mother, like growing up in a financial crash, um, I didn't know what I was supposed to want or what I was allowed to want. And I think that's really interesting. And, and there's another bit where there's a dream sequence where she is what, watching mm. this man eat. And she says something like, he knows that he's hungry and he can just eat so easily without mm. thinking about it. Um, And I think that's really interesting about desire and about like when the maps of the previous generations are no good to you because it's not like you grow up, you buy a house, you have a family, whatever. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that in relation to some of the issues in your novel?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think some of that um, came out of the very real frustration I had uh, in being unemployed. Um, and being extremely well educated and having had really quite excellent work experience for my age at the time and still not being able to um, find a job and just being continually told that um, the job market is really hard and... Um, that we don't actually quite know what to tell you. I mean, just wait to see if it figures itself out. Um, and uh, it's actually still true that I've I've published this book, and that's been my major source of financial stability. But I'm still freelancing, with a bit more kind of success than um, than previously. But I still feel um, to a lesser degree, but the same precarity. Um, towards the end of each month where I kind of tally up the hours that I've done for the various papers that I've written for or the institutions that I'm contracted to um, to see whether I've got enough left over after rent um, to kind of you know leave the house and um, you know knock on wood recently the answer has been yes very happily but I still feel that kind of dread in the bottom of my stomach at the end of every month and I think that's kind of um what I was writing from at that point um the kind of the dream sequence is interesting because that was from that was the one of the only kind of concrete things that made it from um the kind of first version of the book that I talked about earlier. I think that was supposed to be, like in the original first thing that I wrote, that was supposed to be David Cameron um, eating lunch in Brazenose. And I had this draft and I really didn't want to throw it out because it was, uh, I thought at the time, what I had then was a good piece of writing. So I thought I'll just whack it in and see if I can make it you know, slightly strange, slightly surreal. And I suppose like, what I really just wanted was this image of, um, of a man who really belonged to Oxford as an institution and to kind of conservative uh, Britain, feeling fully at ease. And so that's why you have this kind of continual transference of food from her plate to his, which, you know, now I think that's maybe a bit on the nose, but um it was a fun surrealist thing to do at the time (laughs) and um yeah I think I think the book is full of um of those characters of the people who work at that society magazine you know when they're watching Boris Johnson be elected as prime minister they're watching it like it's a football match and um you know I just remember feeling really hollow (laughs) at that moment and Um, I actually um, was at work at the time and it did kind of, um, as some readers will know that my job was very similar to the narrator's, it did kind of play out like a football match and I had to go to the bathroom after the um, live stream from the Tory party conference and ended, I had to go to the bathroom and kind of collect myself to stop myself from screaming. It's, it's, It's almost the same notion of, you know, to a certain generation and then to a certain echelon your class-based echelon it does there will just always be an ease to life that's mainly born out of financial assets you know did you manage to buy a house in London in the 80s when you know it was relatively inexpensive or do you have the millions of pounds to be able to set up wherever now
1: I, I think as well though, there's something really interesting in your book and also in the idea of like um traditional notions of success right so like becoming a novelist you would you would think that that guaranteed you maybe like stability and like perhaps access into a certain kind of world but as someone from a working class background who has also published a novel I feel like I'm learning more and more that even that kind of meritocracy is a myth because it's like yes you you maybe have a certain like cultural capital that you didn't have before, and you have a bit more money, but like you're still not buying property in London,
0: (laughs) most likely. No, that's very true. I think generally though, it's very difficult to find any sort of um, arts or humanities job in which that could be true, unless you're like James Daunt or something, I mean, my my next plan or goal in life is to try and do my PhD. I fully expect to be broke throughout all of it. I fully expect uh. to then spend something like five years searching for a, for a lecturing or an assistant lecturing, you know, position. And then, you know, have a civil service wage, which, if I intend to stay in London, is maybe enough to kind of rent comfortably in zone three for the rest of my life. But... And it's the double-edged sword of you know um most of the industry is here and um that actually probably won't substantially change within our lifetime
2: pivoting back to the what you were saying about the process where you were kind of keeping lots of different archives of 2018 the news articles different speeches this complete cacophony of information that was going on around that that still is going on and i was thinking particularly about like how dialogue works in free rooms and how it's embedded it's embedded without being demarcated by speech marks and stuff and how that had this effect for me as a reader of it feeling like a complete stream of information where loads of people's speech acts like what they're saying often disassociated from the body that's speaking it or you are like you have to work out and so i was wondering about that formal decision of embedding the dialogue and how it reflected your interests in terms of the content?
0: But, uh, well, part of it is um, really petty. Part of it is really just that um, I hate speech marks. <laughs> and, Me too, um, I do. So. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, it was actually, I I'd, I'd attempted short story writing and creative writing while I was doing my undergraduate degree. I think the thing that actually stopped me from thinking that I was a good writer then was the issue of dialogue. And I had, um, when I began writing this book, I had kind of three or four 10,000 word drafts. Um, I was just trying to find a form. So at one point, this book was a poem, which really didn't work, but I just needed to find a way to um break the things that I was doing wrong I guess taking the speech marks out meant that I had to be it it, it meant being a lot more careful about speech in general because I sometimes find that the things characters say to each other in novels are utterly needless there's just this sort of need to make things seem authentic or real that I think is is a bit baseless really, you've you know, if you've committed to sitting down and reading a work of fiction, then I think you've already allowed yourself the kind of capacity to believe in things that maybe aren't entirely real or to expand yourself to possibility that, you know, things won't reflect life perfectly. And I know that I've you know, what I've written is sort of a social realist um novel. But at the same time, um I guess part of it needed to mimic um, how the flow of information comes through on Twitter, which is without any sort of discernment, really, between topics. At some point, while you're scrolling, you sort of lose track of what you're even looking at and, you know, who's written what. And the lack of speech marks was a way to emulate that to a degree. Um, And... I guess also because I I really didn't want to spend time describing what people looked like or what their voices sounded like it was just a way to make sure that I had clearly delineated um i guess characters in t- in, in terms of tone so you know the the narrator's tone should sound different to her flatmates should sound different to the magazine editor or the managing editor should sound different to how her mother speaks it's just a way to kind of keep tabs on character because I hadn't named them I really didn't I had no desire to start you know imagining them in my head I have friends who write who kind of cast actors as their characters which I really can't do um and just on the whole it was it was much better and I think kind of the the books that I kept as a touch point for form were mostly devoid of speech marks as well um so Cusk and Transit I think I can't be sure I'd have to go back and check but and um I think a lot of poetry. I was reading Andrew Motion's Essex Clay because I was trying to get a sense of what it is about his memory of a place that makes it so that makes it so important and I suppose just in emulating all of that kind of material that I had at the time. And and some of it came from, you know, essays and you know with no basis in character building or any of any of that stuff and so the speech marks much like sort of names of characters were I just felt unnecessary I don't think it changes massively your experience of reading other than it might align slightly more with how you'd read your twitter feed or your facebook feed or something like that and if that's true then i'm really glad and if not then you know i don't think the speech marks are an issue
2: no no definitely that was the experience i had as well in the passage that you read at the start i loved how the kind of ritual and pomp and ceremony of the oxford duns is going on and the actual like bodily movement of the protagonist is like in brackets so like i walked i walked which i thought like that juxtaposition was really striking about how she's relating to this bizarre ceremonial Oxford world
0: it's a very closed weird space I think if you I've been back to Oxford since I graduated and I I can't it's so strange I think when you're in it you feel a part of it and then the moment you're out you're out and walking through it now, having graduated, I just really can't find a a place to slot myself in. Quite literally, into the and it's a tiny city. It's so small you can walk from one end of it to to the other in about half an hour. Um, but but there's really, I think, m- no way to feel fully at ease there unless someone has explicitly told you. You know you have been selected to be here you belong here and and she hasn't really um but that that passage was um great because I think that that was one of I wrote the book in a completely linear fashion from beginning to to end and I think that's kind of the first part is where I'm trying to slip in a lot of the theory that kind of builds on the second builds in the second um part of the book and so there are excerpts from Wolf in the passage that I read later on there are excerpts from Walter Pater and uh, I'm only realising it now but often the narrator's walking or pacing around when she's reading this and I guess it's just to kind of keep a sense of momentum going so that there's you know it's not just flat brackets of essays being thrown at you that there is actually something happening or the the sense of something churning or forming or progressing while those are being given to you
1: i also really like the the ways in which she struggles to inhabit space um are reflected in her body so there's the bit where she's at the her flatmate's parents house and um she's talking with all of their friends who are like artists and filmmakers and they physically won't open up the circle Mm. to let her in and she has to like sit at an awkward angle or like how she sleeps on this sofa bed and she has to, like, kind of scrunch up her limbs mm. to, like, fit into it. I thought that was a really good metaphor for
0: how it feels. Again, it's something that feels really on the nose now, but that I, that's terrible because my editors tell me that I'm too subtle and now I'm trying to kind of take even more of it away. I'll end up writing a book with, like, absolutely no words with
2: it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about, like, the... The ritual and tradition which like the protagonist can't connect with at Oxford and panning that across to the high society magazine one of the things that i found really striking there and kind of made me think quite a lot the quote is that they venerate tradition in the past the high society I'm singing, but they use new tech to bring it into the present and make it shinier than it was and i find that really interesting thinking about this like the glamorization of this like elite high society and the way it connects with this very myth- mythologised idea of England and its past, which is obviously completely whitewashed, and we've t- and you kind of touched on that in terms of Brexit as well. Another point, part that you mentioned, when the high society magazine reacts to the Extinction Rebellion protests by doing like a glamour shoot, I I think if I'm right, that happens. Uh, just after the work at the construction workers at the workplace are on strike, which again, that contrast, like the actual strike of the workers in the building that they work is going on, and they're like really irritated by it. At the same time, that they're doing like some glamour fashion shoot with like someone who's clearly never been on a protest, as you said. But back just on the venerating tradition in the past and making it shinier than it was, I wondered if you could speak a bit to this like glamourising of elite high society. And the effect that has on like wider society in in england like in terms of class
0: um i think that kind of recurs across several points in the book there's also the point where there's the talk about feminism that happens towards the end of the Mm -hmm. second part and you know there's this figure who is a composite of i don't think i even really need to name who but a composite of a lot of kind of pop culture figures who have kind of established an empire of being self-help gurus um and are sort of there to help you make your life better but it only really applies if your life is already good to begin with um and i mean i guess making things in the past shinier than they were is just british way it's kind of what i was trying to get across with the turner paintings at the end of um you know she starts out looking at them admiring them because they're beautiful and then notices you know tries very consciously to notice all the things that make them just paintings so notices where the oil has cracked the frame is dirty someone's walked in front of her and in the end she still chooses to go back to viewing them as really beautiful paintings she says to herself i can't sustain this this is impossible I want to look at nice things I want things to be nice Um, and so I'm going to go back to looking at these Turner paintings as you know really beautiful glamorized depictions of English countryside which are being fed back into um, right-wing politics to be used by people like Nigel Farage to paint a picture of Britain that never really existed but which you know is now manipulated into you know telling people that this is what we had this is what we're missing you know you should vote for us we'll bring you back to this and again it never existed. I think in a lot of ways the the reason the protagonist fails in this book is that she allows herself to be fed a false ideal um and and I guess that was really the point of closing the book um or sort of the Um, one of the final scenes being that walk around the Turner rooms in the Tate Britain is that she sees that, you know, she's looking at things in a way that makes them appear shinier than they are. And this is what's been happening throughout the entire novel. But then she allows it because she wants a nice life. Um, I think that's also largely in part because the the book is set around a kind of upper middle class base of characters, you know, the families who appear or, you know, the people that she lives with and works with. They all have um, what is given in the book and outside of the book as a kind of aspirational lifestyle. That's also partly why I wanted the book to take place in a society magazine uh, and why there's a, a passage where she's editing a kind of homeware lifestyle section of what do you buy for your house you know these 75 pound candles these um chandeliers that cost tens of thousands of pounds um you know all of this is kind of distilled into magazines that cost four pounds or books that cost 15 pounds um you know beautifully marketed and told you that you, you know here, read this. It's a guide to how how to make your life better, but it gives you no real tools. Um, I guess the kind of... The veneration of the past that the magazine does is almost the same as, you know, what um, Farage did with, you know, beautiful, grassy images of Britain that are kind of actually abstract that you could... Um, you know kind of adhere those images to any part of you know a green bit of England even somewhere off the M25 um it's it's a way to say look how nice all the things we have are please admire them if you get to this point you're you know you can do this too but we won't tell you how it's a way to keep wealth where it is essentially um and you know using new technology to do that is just a way to kind of recycle that into a new context and you know essentially keep things where they are while feigning this idea of progress and I think that's that's something that the narrator never really fully comes to grips with but that I do hope the reader does I mean I'm I was really it's the one thing I really stand by in the book along with you know, a few choice passages that I'm proud of is the is the fact that there's no moralising in this book. I really wanted it to take place in a complete grey area where you could, you essentially had a bank of information or a case study about how a select group of people had behaved. And then you could draw your own conclusions on why the country looks the way it does now. Um, and I think that's a much more useful purpose for the book than to entertain or to kind of divert or whatever. For it to be a kind of mechanism for thought is the best thing that I could ask of it for any reader. And then if you agree with you know the conclusion that it draws or the conclusion that you come to through it or whether you don't is kind of another matter and that's absolutely fine but as long as it causes you to think that's that's kind of what i wanted
1: i I think that's the perfect place to end um thank you very much for chatting to us oh thank you brilliant to talk to you if you'd like to keep up to date with tender buttons then you can follow us on twitter and instagram You can find Storysmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online.
2: We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.